Well, we thank God for that. Summit Church, I hope you never take for granted the opportunity that we have, the extraordinary and uh, somewhat unique opportunity to be in a place where um, we have the best and the brightest from really all over the United States that come and will spend their educational formative years right here in our backyard. And uh, to be able to not only reach them with the gospel, but to be able to give them the vision for taking that gospel message to uh, the world. Uh, we currently, right now, um, as a church, have 170 of our members that are serving on one of our overseas international church planning teams. Uh, that includes, uh, yeah, it's something to celebrate. That includes everybody, a lot of people from parents um, with teenagers, um, parents with young children, um, and that also includes a lot of recent college graduates like the one that you've seen who are just asking the question, um, how is it that God has given me talents and abilities and how am I supposed to leverage those for the Great Commission? And uh, so um, I, I have prayed, one of my life goals, uh, I don't think I've ever shared this with you, is that we over the course of, of uh, our time here I would have 5,000 um, that would leave our church uh, over the next 40 years that would go um, to being on a permanent basis um, to live on one of these church planning teams. So um, we're very grateful for that. Um, I know that many of you have been asking the question, um, you're like, you know, about this time of year, uh, I feel like I, I hear about this thing called Serve RDU, and it's where we get out and serve the city, but I, I just haven't heard you really talking about it at all uh, this summer, and why is that? Uh, that's a great question, so let me answer it really quickly. The reason is because we're not doing it this summer, we're doing it this fall, October 10th through 12th. Uh, we're moving it to, to, to toward the beginning of the fall. Um, there's two reasons for that. One is we really want um, your small group to be able to participate together um, in that kind of activity. And over the summer, a lot of small groups don't meet, and so it's, you're not able to as well. So that's one reason. The second reason is a major part of our congregation um, are a lot of college students who never get to experience that throughout the, the summer. So we decided to move it to those dates um, and as opposed to doing it on a week during the summer. Now, you're like, well, I'm totally disappointed because I always look forward to that every summer. I'm so glad that you said that because we are going to have one special day, uh, July 13th, it's a Saturday, where we're going to just on one day as a church minister to our city all over the Triangle. Um, so I want you to, registration for that opens today. Um, you can go to Serve RDU, or you can just access it through our primary website, summitrdu.com. Um, and you can, uh, uh, you can just, it's also in your worship guide. Um, sign up. We're going to focus exclusively on some of the schools that we have relationships with um, because the schools, um, you know, there's a lot of things we can do for them and their teachers during the summer that we can't do during the year when all the kids are there. Um, so it's just one day. We want to put 4,000 volunteers on the street. Um, during that one day just to be able to say to our city, we love you and we want to bless you in Jesus' name. Uh, these things, of course, are not, they're just gateways for us to be able to get to know and engage our community. Um, you know, the, the, the fulfillment of our mission is not um, painting a wall or, or cleaning up a playground. Um, that's a ways for us to know and wash the feet of the teachers so that we can tell them about the great news about Jesus Christ. So I hope you'll take advantage of that and I hope that you will sign up for that um, immediately. Um, not right now, but you know, like immediately like this afternoon or something. All right, uh, I am not a huge fan of uh, movies that um, have weird endings that don't really resolve. Um, I realize that some of you are, would lose respect for me on that, and you're like, oh, but those movies are just so much more realistic, and it's just better art because it's more like life. I, I realize that. 
but I don't go to movies to experience life. Okay, I go to movies to take a break from life. And so at the end of the movies I go to, I want the guy and the girl together. I want them riding off in the sunset together. And I want them to, as far as I'm concerned, revel in their victories for the rest of their life, right? Well, see, that's really what ought to happen here in the Elijah story that we have been in. Because if you remember from last week, if you were here, Elijah has won this huge, huge battle. Um, all of Israel. I mean, this is the climatic moment of his life. Uh, if you weren't here, essentially, Elijah rented out the Madison Square Gardens of his day, and he went um, toe-to-toe with the, the current world champions, the prophets of Baal, and he had just a face-off, a showdown with them. His victory was not small. His victory was epic, okay? Uh, he, he was outnumbered 850 to 1, There was a lot of righteous smack talking. There was a lot of holy sarcasm. Um, God answered decisively with fire from heaven. It it wasn't one of these things where he squeaked out a victory in in the last two minutes of game seven when he really should have won the game six. It didn't go like that, okay? Um, He, uh, he, he, I mean, it was decisive. It was game one, game over. And at the end, the whole crowd is on their faces chanting, Elijah, Elijah, which is his name, Elijah, but also means in Hebrew, the Lord is God. What a moment, right? I mean, you couldn't imagine a better, more poetic moment. That's when the credits roll. That's when the music comes up. He rides off into the sunset. Confetti falls from the, from the ceiling. Um, you know, that's, that's when you put your hands up and you're just like, I'm out, ladies and gentlemen, that's it. I mean, you can't get any better than that. Now he's supposed to retire, revel in his victories. But instead, his high on Mount Carmel, you're going to see this, is followed by a spiritual low. Almost sure you're going to see a kind of depression. Before we get into looking at his specifically, could we just acknowledge this? Isn't your life like that sometimes? Right after some victory, right after some spiritually epic moments, you fall back into some spiritual low. You stumble back into some old temptation. Life takes a turn you weren't expecting or something just really goes wrong. It's certainly been that way for me. If I look back over the last 20-some years that I've walked with Jesus, the lowest time spiritually I've ever had usually, almost always, follows some epic spiritual high. It was like that for Jesus. Uh, When Jesus, um, one of the high points in his life was when he was baptized. He's baptized, crowd cheers, voice from heaven booms, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's a spiritual high. I mean, how's that for a cool baptism moment? I mean, you get baptized, you come up by the water, by cheers, and then God the Father splits open heaven, and it's like, that's my boy. That's a spiritual high. Do you ever read um, the accounts in Matthew and Luke of Jesus' baptism? And what you see is that immediately the Spirit takes him into the wilderness. In fact, the way it's written is this, then the devil. The devil meets him right after that baptism to be able to take him as low as he can get him. I sometimes tell people that when they're getting baptized. As they're getting out of the tub, I'm like, it's coming. It's coming. I know this is an awesome moment, but it's coming. That's what's going on with Elijah. For many of you, you obeyed God, and you experienced some success, but then life took a turn that you weren't expecting. The marriage fell apart. And you're like, God, it was going so well. I mean, I I made these decisions. I got involved in, in, in church, but then it fell apart. Your kids didn't follow Jesus. The business tanked. And so you find yourself wondering, God, I really thought I could see where all this was going. God, did I do something wrong? God, are you even there? 
This is the experience that this passage deals with. It's dealing with, listen to this, godly people getting depressed. And I realize that depression is a loaded word because there are so many different kinds, ranging from people who are just really discouraged to those with clinical or chemical issues going on. And my purpose this weekend is not to diagnose the different kinds of depression or to certainly not to provide one solution to all of them. But I think what you'll see in this passage, you're going to see a lot of things that speak to different dimensions of depression across the spectrum. First Kings chapter 19, if you haven't turned in your Bibles there, you can do so now. Last week we left Elijah after this stunning victory on Mark Carmel. You remember that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit to run. He outran uh, the horses and the chariots and he beat everybody back to Jezreel, which was the northern kingdom of Israel's capital at the time. He, he is expecting, as he goes into Jezreel, he's expecting a revolution. He's expecting the people to rise up in this unified commitment, declaring that the Lord is God. Jahab, Ahab and Jezebel are either going to repent or they are going to be deposed. Um, he's you know, he's going to come in, all the people are going to be gathered in a circle in the middle of the city singing Kumbaya or I love you Lord. Um, he's going to give him a nice little house right next to the palace where he can advise the next king to go in the ways of godly you know, ways. Uh, it's just going to, it's going to be awesome. He's going to get his name you know, on, on a star and like the, the street. He's going to get a syndicated TV show. Um, uh, a prodigy prophet, or uh, um, I was going to say Eliz Israelite idol, but that one doesn't really seem right given the context. Elijah's got talent. Uh, maybe that would, would be it. Um, drought dynasty. Uh, he's going to get some TV show where he is going to, it's just going to be, I mean, it's going to be epic. That's how it's supposed to end. Every time people see him on the street, they'll be chanting, Elijah, Elijah. First Kings 19 two. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods what? Didn't we just answer that question? So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not kill you by this time tomorrow. No revolution, no deposition. Elijah didn't even get a plaque. Jezebel has not repented, nor has she been deposed. Far from it. She is still on the throne, worshiping her gods, barking out orders, ordering his death. He's got to go back into hiding. Verse 3. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there and he went by himself a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Safe to say, Elijah is depressed. He wants to die. What he hoped would happen, what he expected to happen, has not happened. He's angry with God. He thought he knew God. He thought he had this figured out. He thought he could see a clear trajectory. But he's just not so sure anymore. Just a few months after Charles Spurgeon became pastor and some epic successes, one of the most successful pastors in history, um, pastor in, in London, church grew from three or 400 to several 10,000 people within the space of two or three months, um, it was so successful that they had to change venues. Eventually, they outgrew every venue they could come to, and they were trying to find a venue that they could meet in together, and they had to go to, like, sports arenas and that kind of thing. A lot of his elders were, I mean, he wanted to go multi-site, but his elders were just too hard-hearted to go that direction. They were so old-fashioned. Uh, they still use flip phones, uh, you know, so uh, they just didn't get it. Uh, so they had to go to one 
um, big arena. And uh, as you can imagine, Spurgeon had a lot of detractors. Anytime God's hand is on somebody, that always happens. And so uh, Spurgeon got a lot of hate mail, got a lot of public criticism, people saying that he was um, an egomaniac. Uh, they were saying that he's a fundamentalist and a, and a cult leader, that no church should ever be that big. The only reason you would grow a church that big is because you were so enamored with yourself. Um, he had a lot of, uh, of threats. Well, one day in the middle of one of his services where there's 10,000 people present in a very packed auditorium, somebody comes in, sits about three quarters of the way back, and in, a, in the middle part of his sermon stands up and yells, fire. Now, in those days, that was, I mean, that was because, you know, here you are in an overcrowded auditorium that was a stampede, and as 10,000 people tried to get out of this place thinking there was a fire, seven people died. Spurgeon was devastated. He was devastated. His biographers say that he spiraled into a depression for years that he never quite got over. Never got over. Have you ever felt like this? You, you did everything right. God really seemed to come through, but then set back. And you're like, where did that come from? Verse 5, and he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Those were high-protein pancakes or, you know, whatever, power pancakes. Verse 9, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and they've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. What, 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 what do you see there in those verses that God is doing? Tim Keller points out that God does three things. Look at this. Number one, God first sends an angel of rest. Angels in the Bible are always on assignment. I don't know if you know that. Hey, angels are not just roaming about the earth, you know, meandering about, rushing back, telling God, like, hey, you're not going to believe what's going on down here or that I saw. Um, angels are always on assignment. This angel is on an assignment to Elijah sent to take care of him. What does the angel say when he sees Elijah? What does he say when he sees him despondent like this? Elijah, show some faith. Elijah, get it together, man. Come on. Elijah, here's a John Piper book. Why don't you read this? Think about suffering for a while. Why don't you do that, huh? Is that what he says? Nope. What's he do? He touches him. He makes him some nice hot pancakes. And then makes him take a nap. And then sends him off to a cabin in the mountains for a little vacay. Number two, God listens. He said, what are you doing here, Elijah? I mean, you realize that whenever God asks a question, he's not seeking information. Right? God already knows the answer to that question. He knows why he's there. He's asking him for his sake. And then he just listens. Did you catch the detail in verse 2 that Elijah had sent his servant, or you could read that apprentice, or really his traveling companion? He left him a day's journey away. You know that when you go through a time of despondency, you want to be by yourself? Do not follow that impulse. David Pallison, Christian counselor, says, things that grow in a secret garden always grow mutants. I know you feel like being alone. That is the worst possible thing. Number three, God gives his word. God gives his word to Elijah. He's going to address some lapses of faith. He's going to try to broaden his perspective a little. We'll get into that word in just a minute. 
But first, let me point out that you got three different approaches to dealing with depression in those verses. He ministers to Elijah physically with the touch, with the food, and with the nap, spiritually by dealing with his wrong view of God, and psychologically by listening to him. You see, depending on your worldview, you probably gravitate toward one of those three. You see it all over our culture. Some people think that humanity is primarily physical, so if you're going through a tough time, you just got to figure out how to get some vacation, how to cut the sources of stress out of your life, take a pill, right? Because you, 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 it's mostly physical. Other people are on the other side, and they think, no, no, we're, we're mostly spiritual. So these people, it's like you need some prayer. You need some faith. You need to stop sinning. You need to get over it. These people think the idea of taking a pill or identifying physical causes to your depression is essentially to betray the faith. The third group views depression as primarily psychological. You just got to talk it out, get some friends around you, you know, just, just, just get it out there. I just got to vent, right? God uses all three because he designed us in all three ways. We are what we call a psychosomatic being, which is a body, soul. You're not, you're not a soul without a body. You're not a body without a soul. You're not a soul floating around inside of a body, bouncing around like the ghost in the machine. You are a soul united to a body, a soul clothed with a body, and you can't really separate the soul from the body in that sense, which means that a lot of times, listen, you've never heard a pastor say this, ever. You don't need prayer or a sermon, you need a nap, all right? In fact, maybe that's your action point from this sermon, go home and take a nap. I'd appreciate you not applying it right now, Okay. Um, I can see a couple guys in the back, they're already applying the sermon. Not now, okay? You need a vacation, you need to be touched, you need a weekend away with your spouse, you need to read a good book. And I don't mean like a book on like how not to be despondent, right? I mean like fiction, if that's your thing. Historical fiction, if you're like me. You like Amish love romance novels, then get one of them, all right? Whatever, <laughs> whatever. One of my historical heroes is Winston Churchill. And Churchill, uh, they say that, it, that he had three hobbies that throughout his life he always practiced. Um, he loved to read novels, he loved to watch movies, and he loved to paint. And they say that even at the, the highest, hottest days of World War II, when he was most stressed, he would take two hours every evening to do one of those things. Why? Because he was, he was taking care of himself physically so he would have the strength to lead the nation. In college, I was talking to one of my professors who was became a kind of mentor to me, and I was struggling with frustration. I was struggling with burnout. And he said, JD, he said, for you, the godly, the most godly thing you can do sometimes is take a nap. In your case, that'll do more to help you with the fruits of the Spirit than will memorizing another verse in, in your case. All right, so sometimes you just need to take time to take care of yourself physically. He, he ministers to Elijah psychologically by allowing Elijah to talk out his feelings. He's a friend to it. The Psalms are filled with people venting to God. Being godly does not mean pretending your emotions aren't there. Sure, I mean, sure, some of your emotions need to be corrected. Not every emotion is legitimate, but you can't correct the source of the emotion if you don't get it out there. Our emotions are not usually good or bad. They're simply indicators of what's going on inside of you. It's like a, it's like a fire alarm in your house. The fire alarm goes off. The problem is not the fire alarm. The problem is what made the fire alarm go off, right? So your emotions are, are simply indicating what's going on inside of you. It's not that you need to contain the emotion. It's you need to figure out where the source of the emotion is coming from. So sometimes you have to express the emotion to be able to help identify what's going on in your heart and if need be to correct some of those things. So get a journal and write out your feelings like David did. 
When you read the Psalms, essentially you're reading David's prayer journal. You ever work your way through these? I mean, some of them are not, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want kind of things. They're like, oh, you allowed to say that to God? I don't think you're allowed to say that to God. I mean, they're pretty salty, some of them, right? So, so exp- get some people around you. Some of you, like Elijah, have left your friend behind. You are isolated. Terrible mistake. Terrible mistake. Things that grow in a secret garden always grow mutants. He ministers to Elijah spiritually by giving him his word. Now, I can't diagnose which one of these is primarily your problem. Usually, not always, it's a combination of these things. And what I'm going to say from here on out applies mostly to spiritually-based depressions and discouragement. But let me just challenge you, even if you don't think that your depression is spiritual, even if you don't think that the person you're thinking about right now, their depression is spiritual, let me challenge you to listen anyway, because chances are there's a lot more spiritual things tied up in your emotions than you tend to realize. Okay, so just let's look at what God says to Elijah. Let me show you this. The Biblical Counseling Coalition put out a, a chart recently called the development of, of spiritually rooted depressions. And what you'll see is you've got, um, you've got kind of four stages that work their, their, you know, you're working your way down. Um, the first one is disappointment. Disappointment, that's where you've got confusion, sadness, grief, unfulfilled expectations. That's what's going on with Elijah, right? Unfulfilled expectations. I thought things would be different. God didn't come through. My favorite part of this chart, by the way, is the stick figures right there. You see that? Okay, so your, your ruling desires have an arrow through them. You, something happened. That leads to discontentment. Discontentment, which produces self-righteousness, self-pity. That's where Elijah is. I'm the only one. You're not taking care of me. Brooding. Oh, by the way, self-righteousness. Have you experienced that before where you really get disappointed and your reaction is to start to justify why you're actually a lot better than everybody else? So, for example, you don't get the job. So what you start doing is thinking the guy that did get the job, he's a terrible husband. I'm a great husband. I may not have gotten that job, but I'm a better person all around than he is. That ever happened to you? It happens to me. Some things I've been disappointed with in life, I'm like, well, the reason that I didn't get that particular honor is because I had the courage to tell the truth, and that punk doesn't. That's why he gets all the acclaim, and I don't, because I got the courage to tell the truth. Self-righteousness. Right? That's a sign that you have moved from disappointment to discontentment, brooding, anger, bitter. You you think about it all the time, and it poisons your emotions toward other people. You're jealous. You fantasize about their destruction. That leads to number three, despair, which is a sense of hopelessness. See the little stick figure that hits the hump in the mountain, and now its head's exploding? Yeah, okay, so that's, that's, that's what's a good picture of what's happening to you. You see no way out. You, watch this, start to give up on responsibilities. You get very lethargic. Sometimes you can't even get out of bed. You have trouble working through the day. You have trouble being a good mom, being a good dad. You just start to give up on your responsibilities. That leads to stage four, destructiveness, where in some cases you become suicidal or homicidal. The early signs of that are a very critical spirit, hostility toward people, impulsivity. You see yourself anywhere in that chart? Here's what God's word is to the discouraged. Here it is. Here's what he says to Elijah. Verse 11. And God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. That's a command, right? Watch this. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper or a still small voice. 
Verse 13, and when Elijah heard the still small voice, he wrapped his face in the cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. All right, that's a very important detail I'll get back to. And behold, then there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? All right, so what's this about? Well, it's a very important detail that you got to understand to unpack this passage that you might have skipped over, unless you're a Bible scholar. Mount Horeb. Do you know another name for Mount Horeb? What's, the, what's Mount Horeb's other name? Mount Sinai. Some of you just look down at your study Bible and you're like, oh, there it is, genius. I just knew that, all right? Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. You remember what happened to Mount Sinai? That's where God gave the Ten Commandments. It was one of the most dramatic moments in Israel's history where God descended on that same mountain. And when God descended on that same mountain to Moses, what did it look like? Fire, wind, earthquake. And God, in Moses' case, was in the fire. Remember the burning bush? He was in the wind. He was in the earthquake. Those things were the presence of God. And now, with Elijah, those same things happen, but it specifically says God was not in the fire. God was not in the earthquake. God was not in the, the tornado. So what is the meaning of that? Here it is. God's voice in our lives does not always come in the ways we expect him to. But that does not mean that God is not speaking. Just because God is not working like you expected him to work does not mean that he is not at work. That's the point that he's trying to make. Hey, with Moses, I was in the fire. You were thinking that when I showed up in your situation, I'd come with the same kind of things. You thought that there would be this epic revolution, but there wasn't. And you assumed that that meant that I'm not working, but you are wrong. The verses 15 through 18, look at it. You'll see what God says he's doing. He's raising up a pagan king named Hazael who's going to bring judgment on Ahab and his wicked witch of the wife, wicked witch of the west wife, Jezebel. He's going to do that. And, and, and Elijah has no knowledge of that, but God's doing it. God's doing it behind the scenes. Oh, and by the way, God's got 7,000 other people in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal that Elijah seems to be totally ignorant of. Elijah, you see, had put God in a box just like we do. He expected that God only works one way, and when God didn't work that one way that he expected, then he assumed that God is not there. You may want to write this down. Elijah thinks that God has let him down, but God has not let Elijah down. Elijah's limited view of God and how God works has let Elijah down. So you want to take a point? Write down number one. In a time of discouragement, you must defer to the wisdom of God. In a time of discouragement, you must defer to the wisdom of God because God is often doing his best work in ways that you don't know. You ever, you ever get to a stage in your life when you look back on another stage in your life when it really looked in that stage like God was, was not there, he's not working? And then like five years later, you're like, oh, I totally see that God was doing some of his best work right there, right? So if you, watch, if you, with, with five years, with limited time and perspective, can already see what God was doing in some of the dark times, don't you think that given enough time, like eternity, and enough perspective, like heavenly wisdom, you're going to see a reason for all of it? You must defer to the wisdom of God. Number two, here's the second thing being taught, you must embrace the love and the grace of God. you got to embrace the love and the grace of God. You say, where do you get that, J.D.? I'll show you. Remember I pointed out the detail God calls Elijah out of the cave in verse 11? But Elijah doesn't actually get out there to verse 13. So what's happening? 
Is Elijah just, you know, is he, why, why does he not go out in verse 11? All right, well, what happens in verse 12? Do you see that? Tornado, right? Earthquake, fire. In fact, the tornado and the earthquake are so bad, it said it tore the mountain in pieces. If it tore the mountain in pieces, what would it have done to Elijah had Elijah gone out there in verse 11? So God keeps Elijah in the mountain so that the mountain, listen, absorbs the intensity of the tornado. The mountain absorbs the fire. The mountain absorbs the earthquake. And so when Elijah comes out, all he experiences of God is a still, small, gentle voice. You see, the tornado, the earthquake, and the fire are all pictures of God's judgment. Elijah was hidden in the cleft of the rock, the cave, so that the mountain would absorb those things and they would not touch Elijah. The mountain absorbed the judgment, so Elijah got grace. And grace came to him in the form of a low whisper. A whisper means that someone is close to you, they're intimate, they're tender. When someone, if you come to me after the service and try to whisper in my ear, I guarantee you I'm going to back you away because I have space issues. Okay? I don't want you that close that I have to hear you whisper. There is tenderness that is involved. When someone is whispering, they are very, very close, and that's what God is showing to Elijah. But maybe even more than that, what he's giving to Elijah, catch this, is a picture of something that we you and I are going to see much more clearly. Do you know that Elijah, you know this, he never dies. He gets swept up in a chariot of fire. All right, one of the only people in the Bible doesn't die, but he shows up again. Do you remember where he shows up? You don't know if your Bible know this. He shows up again right before Jesus dies on top of a mountain, standing with Jesus in all of his glory, and standing with him is Moses. Now, Moses, if you recall, I told you this a second ago, also met God at that exact same place, Mount Sinai. And when, remember this? When God came to Moses, Moses, God said, if you see me, you'll die. So God put Moses in the cleft of the rock, just like he put Elijah, and he passed by so that he would not be destroyed. So now what you've got, watch this, is Moses and Elijah standing on top of the mountain in the presence of the glory of Jesus, and it's not hurting them. Because they are for the first time seeing what that mountain represented, and that is Jesus, who would be the rock, who would absorb the tornado, the fire, and the earthquake of God's judgment so that all we could get is the low and gentle whisper of intimacy and tenderness. What they saw in mystery, we see in clarity. What they saw in shadow, we see in substance. Jesus received the tornado of God's judgment. He, in Hebrew terms, inherited the wind. He got the earthquake of God's justice. There was a little earthquake when Jesus died on the cross. He, he got the fire of God's justice that burned through him, so that you and I, watch this, we experience all three of those things in the first four chapters of Acts. The Holy Spirit comes like a mighty rushing wind, but the wind does not destroy, the wind fills us with power. It appears as a cloven tongue of fire above our heads, but the fire does not destroy, it gives us resurrection power. They pray in Acts 4 and God shakes the room with an earthquake, but the earthquake does not destroy them, it fills them with boldness. Jesus got the fire, the tornado, and he got the earthquake of God's judgment so that you and I could get the low whisper that releases into us a tornado, an earthquake, and the fire of God's power. You see, he is the, he's the rock. He's the what took that so that you got grace, so that you hear the low whisper of God saying in you, Abba, Father. The book of Romans, he sheds abroad through his spirit love in your heart, and he whispers to you, I am your daddy. 
You are my child. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You're my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. The spirit testifies in our spirit that we are the children of God and cries out, daddy. And see, and that means that whenever God doesn't do what I think he really should do, I don't have to doubt his goodness or his control. I mean, think about it. God's goodness toward me was forever demonstrated at the cross. When he prayed for my forgiveness, even when I was pounding nails into his hands. Do I need to doubt his goodness toward me now? If, if, if he would pray for my blessing and my forgiveness when I was pounding nails into his hands, don't I think that he's going to continue to show tenderness and love to me now that I'm his child? It's like John Owen said, the greatest insult you could give to God after the cross is to doubt his love for you. I don't doubt his goodness. When, when I feel like I'm alone in a time of discouragement or despondency, I'm not. I'm not. Why? Well, Gethsemane proves I'm not because that's where Jesus went into the garden and actually was alone. He prayed to God the Father, and God the Father turned his back away. And so that Jesus would say to him, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But because Jesus went through that and was forsaken for me, I know that when I walk through a garden that feels like Gethsemane, that I am not alone, that he has walked with me, that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to fear any evil because you're with me. I will never leave you or forsake you, he says. I don't have to doubt those things, even though I feel like it. I might feel like all hope is lost. I may feel like it's all out of control, but it's not think about it. If there was ever a time, ever, that it looked like God was out of control, it was the cross. That's when wicked men and women, the Jezebels of that day, are not just trying to kill Jesus, but actually killing Jesus. And the spineless wimp king, in this case Pilate, not Ahab, won't do anything to stand up for him. But instead of it being the greatest time where evil was in charge, it was actually where God was doing his best work. It was a Friday of despair, but it was a Sunday of resurrection. And what that means is in my dark times, when I feel like I'm in a Friday, and sometimes I feel like that, and when I feel like it's all that it is is crosses around me, and I feel like God's not showing up, and I'm like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I know that he actually has not, because every time there's a cross, he always brings a resurrection. If a good, all-powerful, all-wise God was fully in charge of the cross, I can be sure he's in charge of my life, even when he's not doing the things that I expected him to do. So that leads me to number three, you must confront the lie. You must confront the lie. Twice in this passage, God asked Elijah why he's depressed. Twice. God asked Elijah, twice Elijah responds, get this, listen, with a mixture of truth and error. It says the exact same thing twice, and it's a mixture of truth and an error. Watch this. Um, look at verse 10. I've been jealous for you, or excuse me, zealous for you. Is that true or false? True. Thumbs up. The Israelites have rejected you. True or false? True. They have killed your prophets. True. I'm the only one left. False. God's got 7,000 secret agents in Israel Elijah doesn't know about. And by the way, he's about to raise up another prophet at the end of 1 Kings 19, a little fellow by the name of Elisha, okay, who is forever condemning you to get the two confused and not be able to know who's who, right? And you're like, Elijah, Elisha, what happened to who? I don't get it, all right? But Elisha is going to have twice the power that Elijah had. God's going to raise up twice the power that Elijah had, and Elijah's totally unaware of that. Oh, and by the way, there's actually coming another prophet who's going to show up 800 years later who is going to be not just a great prophet, it's going to be the Son of God himself who is going to bring the salvation that Elijah's just gotten a taste of. He alone is left. Do you realize how wrong that statement is? Elisha's coming. Jesus is coming. But see, that's how despair and depression actually works. 
the momentum of a few true things leads you to a dangerously false conclusion. Oh, it's all lost. False. God, it's useless. My family's never going to change. False. My friends will never listen. False. The workplace that I work in will never be, um, will never be good. It's always going to be toxic. False. It's not going to get any better. False. There's nobody who cares about me. False. I'll never be happy. False. Your depressed self is whispering these conclusions to you, and you have got to stop listening to them. You've got to defy your depressed self. The words of Jared Wilson, you've got to stop listening and start talking. You've got to start preaching gospel over your life, and don't mumble when you do it. You've got to take hold of yourself and preach don't be long, and by the way, don't be, do be long-winded if that's what it takes. Don't let me be the only long-winded preacher in your life, all right? You'd be like, I am not alone. I am not alone. Gethsemane and the cross prove I'm not alone. My future is not dim. It feels like it's dim, but the resurrection shows me it is not. It shows me that when I go through a Friday, that a Sunday's around the corner. I will be happy again. I will have joy again. Tell your depression and sadness that its days are numbered. And even if it should, God forbid, even if it should last till your dying breath, it will be vanquished for all eternity while you, your redeemed, glorified soul, will escape to everlasting joy in the Father's presence, in whose presence is fullness of joy, and at whose right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So see, if you never get over it, if you never get over it, it's still not permanent. If you never get over it in this life, it's still not permanent because God has a resurrection and you're going to be in the presence of him in whose presence is fullness of joy. Can't get more joy than that. Right hand or pleasures forevermore. Can't get longer than that. That's what your future is. So God says to Elijah, see, I'm working on a plan beyond anything you ever considered, and it involves me actually coming to earth. Elijah, you feel like your efforts have failed and are wasted. They are not. Church, when you get to heaven, you're going to see that there was no wasted act of faithfulness, not one. No one answered prayer. Every cup of cold water given in Jesus' name, he knew about. Every one of them, and every one of them he used. There's no one answer prayer. Not a hair from your head fell to the ground without God knowing. Not a sparrow from the sky fell without him knowing. That God was fully in charge of all these things that were happening, always working the resurrection. Nothing done in God's name is ever wasted. In every cross of pain and suffering and deprivation that you go through in faith, God works the miracle of the resurrection. So Paul says, in the midst of a cross of his own, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Because the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, proves it's not going to be, which means number four, you got to get back to your assignment. you got to get back to your assignment. Verse 15, the story ends with God telling Elijah to get back. Do you see it? Just get back to being a prophet. Elijah, there's some people who need the word of God. you got a king to anoint. you got a, you got another young man to train up named Elisha. That means for you, whatever you ought to be doing, no matter how despondent and underappreciated you feel doing it, you got to get back to doing it. Being a dad, being a mom, being a wife or a faithful husband. Yeah, I know the people around you don't appreciate you, and I know that's a kind of cross, and I'm not trying to make light of that. But I'm just saying you keep working through that cross because God, that's how he brings resurrection. you got to get back to being a witness to your friends even when they're not listening, to keep pressing in on that unreached people group. I'm saying that for our church planners that are listening right now. To keep knocking on that door, realizing that God is through the faithful service of his people and the crosses that they bear. God's going to bring that resurrection of revival and awakening that you have hoped for for so long for that nation. 
you got to get back to being a good, God-honoring, gospel-demonstrating boss or employee. And you, you have to be steadfast. You have to be unmovable. You have to always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is never in vain. It's never wasted. He's working. He's always working. You see, people tend to think that in the past, in Bible times, God's work was always clear and dramatic and easy to trace. That's not true. Wasn't true for Elijah, one of the greatest prophets that ever lived. Elijah knew what it meant to, to be confused and angered by God. He had questions just like you. And he was despondent and he was depressed. God was always working. He's working in your situation. His still, small, powerful, earth-shattering, mountain-moving, fire-inducing voice is still speaking in your heart in tenderness and grace. I told you Charles Spurgeon struggled with depression for most of his life. Doctors later figured out it was related to a condition he had called gout that produced a lot of these symptomatic things that meant that for all of his days he struggled with depression. Never got over it. Wasn't a lack of faith by any means. He's one of the greatest men of faith to live in the 19th and 20th century. Never got over it. Spurgeon decided to see depression not as the absence of God's word. Spurgeon decided to see depression, listen to this, as itself a word from God. He opted to use it to trust that God meant something by it or through it. He assumed that God, through his depression, was giving Spurgeon and the people he led a picture of something. And that picture of something was better and it was deeper than even an easy earthly life in a body that works like it's supposed to. He assumed that that depression was a symbol, a pointer to an eternity that would be much better than anything we could ever achieve on earth, an eternity in the presence of Jesus, in whose presence is fullness of joy, and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Once to Spurgeon's congregation, he said, listen to this, I quote, I find myself frequently depressed, perhaps more so than anybody else in this room of 10,000 people. I, the pastor, the man of God, am more depressed than anybody else in here. I find no better cure for that depression than to trust in the Lord with all my heart and seek to realize afresh the power of the peace-speaking blood of Jesus and his infinite love in dying upon the cross to put away all my transgressions. You hear what he did? He preached to himself. He preached to himself. You need to preach to yourself. You need to stop listening to your depressed self and start preaching to your depressed self. You just say what the psalmist said in Psalm 103, bless the Lord, oh my soul. You ever think about how weird that phraseology is? Who's he talking to in Psalm 103? He's not talking to you, not talking to God, he's talking to himself. Hey soul, bless the Lord. My soul is telling me, be depressed and be angry at God, but I'm telling my soul, bless the Lord. Forget not all his benefits. Remind yourself that he's ultimately going to heal all your diseases. He's going to redeem your life from the pit. He's going to bring resurrection. So I'm going to preach to myself. I cannot be, listen, I cannot be the only preacher in your life. You should be the primary. You and the Holy Spirit ought to be the primary preacher in your life. All I'm doing every week is giving you a few things that the Holy Spirit you can use throughout the week. But you got to preach longer, better, deeper, richer sermons than I ever preached to you on the weekend because you got to preach the gospel to yourself in every emotion. you got to preach it especially in the valleys of despondency and despair. you got to preach to yourself because the only thing that can get you out of a deep valley of despondency is a deeper arm of resurrection power and love. 
So I, Corey Timboom said this. She said, um, she said uh, there is no pit. There is no emotion that is so deep and painful that God's arm is not deeper still. You got to realize whatever pit you're in, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, the Lord's arm is not shortened that it cannot save. The Lord's ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. That God takes depression. God takes it and he says, you're not alone. And I never stop loving and I'm always working. And if you hang on in time, you'll see Sunday, you'll see that resurrection come. So be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because your labor is never in vain. It's never in vain. And you never doubt my love for you. Why don't you bow your heads if you would. Where are you at with this? What's the Holy Spirit saying to you right now? Can you hear his voice crying out in you, Abba, Father? The Spirit himself, Paul says, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And he cries out from our spirit, Daddy. Do you sense that? Do you sense that still, small, tender voice whispering to you, you're my child. I will never leave you or forsake you. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to give you a future and a hope. Not plans to ruin you. Not plans to bring you to despair. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Could she have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, says the Lord. See, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. I've put your days ever before me. No height, no depth, no power, no setback could ever separate you from my love. Now I am working in all things, maybe different than you thought, but my love and power have never ceased. Cross and resurrection prove that. God, help us to embrace and be embraced by the gospel. We leave God, we put our eyes on you. The only way, God, I know that we can get out of the deep well of despondency is by a deeper arm of God's grace. And so we rejoice in it in Jesus' name.